do better. Welcome to Do Better Podcast, a digital content hub from Asade, built for minds interested in doing better. Knowledge ideas, perspectives, and research insights on topics that matter. Business advice for better decisions and growth. Latest on the world of innovation and ideas. A look inside a global world beyond borders and an open view on social challenges. You can leave your comments and suggestions on dobetter.isade.edu. Welcome to this podcast by Isadegeo. I'm Angel Saz Carranza. I'm a professor of strategy and policy here at the Sade Business School and the director of the Sadegeo Center on Global Economy and Geopolitics, chaired by uh, former High Representative Javier Solana. So we're here today on the 16th of December in Barcelona uh, with Mr. Robert Cooper uh, to talk about the EU, the EU in a complex world, and EU external action. Um, this podcast recording is organized by, by the H2020 project Engage, envisioning a new governance architecture for global Europe and Esade Geo itself. Uh, Robert Cooper is a British diplomat, advisor, and acclaimed writer who has held numerous positions in British and European foreign policy, including working with Javier Solana, the former High Representative for Common Foreign and Security Policy of the EU, um, and uh, actually the president of our center, as, as I was saying before. So welcome, uh, Mr. Cooper. It's a pleasure to be here. I, I think of myself um, more as a European diplomat than a British diplomat. I was much happier working for the European Union than I was for Britain. I now live in exile in London. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, in fact, uh, we will be talking about the EU mostly or not so much about the UK and we clearly are here to tap into your experience as a European foreign policy expert. Thank you very much for uh, visiting us. Uh, perhaps um, let's start off with uh, unfortunately one of the um, central events happening in Europe right now. Um, the war is raging on European soil um, many of us didn't expect this to happen at least uh, a few months before it actually happened in February 2022 when Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, yet we need to make sense of, of, of how we've gotten here. Given your extensive experience in European policy, uh, what are your thoughts on why this war is happening and where does the war come from? I, you, you, you say many of us uh, didn't expect this. Um, I think almost nobody expected this. Um, on, the, uh, on the day before the war began, um, because uh, it, the Russian troop presence uh, on Ukrainian territory was already visible, um, uh, and they were talking about a military exercise in, uh, in Moscow, um, uh, I was with a group of people who were a mixture of experts on Russia and experts on military questions, and nobody thought there was going to be a war. This was the day before. Um, uh, why? Uh, I mean, the answers they 
they, they gave were very plausible. They said, um, look, the, um, uh, uh, there are two things which are completely wrong about this, why there were, why, which made clear there would be no war. Um, uh, the forces are not enough. Um, if you want to uh, attack Ukraine, this is, the force is too small. Um, and the sec that was what the military experts were saying. And then they said, and besides, uh, if you're going to start a war, um, uh, you have to do some kind of um, psychological, political preparation at home. You need to build up an atmosphere that people understand this is a moment of national importance, that uh, war is inevitable, and nothing has been done. So um, uh, these are both very, you know, uh, were very good reasons for not expecting a war. Um, but what we hadn't expected um, was a war which could be so incompetently organized. Um, uh, uh, not enough forces, not properly armed, not prepared, uh, and a population not prepared as well. So not only is the war a, um, is the war a political mistake, uh, uh, it's, uh, and a disgrace to European civilization, um, but it's also incomp been incompetently organized for the, from the beginning. Uh, this doesn't mean that, that you know, this is, this is perhaps even more dangerous than a more competent war. Um, but nevertheless, it's, a, it's really a profound shock. Um, uh, I don't think nine months later, it's still hard to believe that this is going on in Europe. Mm -hmm. And is there any, uh, apart from being an incompetently planned, thought out, executed war so far, um, is there any way we can make sense why Russia decides to go to war? I will say that uh, this is a little bit further back, but um, I was shocked when I read the, um, uh, in 2008, I was shocked when I read the communique of the uh, NATO Bucharest summit, um, in which the communique says, um, Georgia and Ukraine uh, will be members of NATO. Um, it didn't say when, uh, and it didn't say how, and it didn't make any attempt to start the process of joining NATO. There was a, NATO has increased its membership, um, uh, and there is a path to this. It's called the, uh, the first thing is you agree to give the possible member a so-called membership action plan, NATO map it was called. So they just, and when you read this communique, you said to yourself, um, well, what is this? Is this a promise that they will become members of NATO? If it is, then why not start the process of joining? Or is it just a prediction that it's not our business, but we think one day they're going to be members of NATO? But these are the heads of government of NATO. Um, it, it's not their business to make predictions, it's their business to make decisions. And what kind of decision is this? So this was a thoroughly incompetently written communique, um, which in the end reflected the fact that this was actually um, the final legacy of George W. Bush. 
Um, it was his last, last NATO summit, and he had uh, what he called um, his freedom agenda, uh, spreading democracy. Um, he'd already spread democracy uh, to Iraq by um, uh, the invasion there, which hadn't turned out entirely successfully. Um, and he now decided to spread democracy by um, announcing the uh, future membership of NATO um, by neighbors of Russia. Now, um, uh, there's nothing that justifies what Russia has done, um, but you don't have to be a genius to think, well, this might be a little bit disturbing for Russia, uh, this announcement. But what's particularly ridiculous about this is that um, it's enough to um, cause anxiety in Moscow, um, but it does nothing to protect Ukraine and Georgia. So um, if you really want uh, an example of how sometimes collective multilateral bodies um, can do things which are more stupid than anyone would do individually because they reach a compromise and the compromise is not, is not well thought out. Mm -hmm. um, but not only do they do, does, does NATO do this, which, as I say, when I read this communique, I think, what have these people been drinking? Um, uh, um, but um, this is now becomes language which is agreed by NATO, um, and in every future communique, they repeat it, just in case they were wrong the first time. <laughs> so, uh, um, so, but don't let me... You know, don't think that I'm blaming NATO for the war. Mm -hmm. um, the war was uh, launched by, uh, by Russia, by Mr. Putin, um, uh, and there is no justification for it. Um, uh, but this was hardly a piece of uh, a great act of diplomatic wisdom. So before you mentioned that there are different, very different or opposing perceptions in Kiev and in Moscow. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about that. Well, um, I mean, there is a famous statement by uh, Mr. Putin in, is it, I don't know, 2003? Uh, no, maybe it's a bit later than that. Maybe it's 2008 when he um, describes the breakup of the Soviet Union. What he's <laughs> probably talking about there more than anything else is actually the separation of Ukraine and Russia. Um, uh, and he now has uh, set out at uh, great length in his essay um, uh, the thesis that uh, Ukraine and Russia are one nation. Um, uh, well, that may be what he thinks in Moscow, but it's not what he, they think in Kiev. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, Russia invades uh, Ukraine on the 24th of February in 2022 this year, and that's the day that the Olympic Games end in Beijing, the Winter Olympic Games. Uh, what can we make of, of that coincidence? Well, it's not that, I mean, the thing, when you ask that question, the thing that immediately <laughs> springs to mind is that um, uh, 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 Russia invaded Georgia uh, when the Summer Olympics were going on in Beijing, 
So I, I'm not trying to draw a causation between this and say it's what always happens whenever China organizes the Olympic Games, Russia invades somebody. <laughs> but this is a, uh, um, uh, well, there is, um, I, I don't know, I have no idea actually if they, if they chose that, uh, uh, if they chose that date, if they thought about it at all. So many other things in the uh, invasion of, of Ukraine were done incompetently that it's perfectly possible that that was incompetent too. Um, it's, but it's also possible that, um, you know, because everybody's looking in this direction, it makes it easier to prepare your attack under mm -hmm. cover of the, the news media. Although, you know, the Winter Olympics, it's not like the Summer Olympics, it's sure. not such a big event. So I, I've no idea why this, uh, why this right, date thanks. was chosen. Um, it's always difficult to make predictions, as we have all experienced lately, but what do you think could be the possible futures or scenarios we can think of regarding the medium term of this, of this war? So I, I mean, it's, um, we're now uh, nine months or so um, into this war. Um, uh, and that's already a kind of surprise. I don't know if you'd been asked on um, 23rd of October um, what do you think is going to happen. Um, would you expect that nine months later the war would still be going on? I, I, that's already a surprise. I mean, first, normally, um, if the Russians had been organizing an incompetent, uh, a really competent war, they ought to have been able to overrun Ukraine very quickly. Um, so I don't think any of us expected the uh, resistance that there's been from Ukraine. Um, and the, not just resistance uh, of the military, but a, a kind of national determination in Ukraine. Um, if Mr. Putin um, doubts that Ukraine is a proper nation, um, well, uh, he's wrong, um, and this war is one of the things that will make Ukraine uh, into a nation and will forever separate it from Russia. So if he regards that as being the great catastrophe, well, he's now added a second catastrophe to it. Good. So we've seen, um, we've seen the EU respond um, uh, very innovatively and, and strongly to this, uh, to this war. Uh, it affected the drafting of the strategic compact, has increased defense and cooperation, at least defense spending for sure, at the member state level. Uh, it has gone into joint purchase of weapons to support uh, Ukraine. Many of these actions were not expected uh, a few months ago. Uh, what do you think should be uh, some of the policies or actions that you should be taking now to prepare itself for future uh, threats and for a world which might have other events like the one we've... And uh, perhaps you should also add to that list of things that the EU's been doing. Um, it's um, been reducing dramatically uh, its dependence on Russian energy. Um, uh, this was a kind of, um, uh, particularly uh, for Germany, this was a kind of uh, strategic dependency um, which was extremely dangerous. Uh, 
So for all of those things, um, uh, as usual, everybody's doing it too late, but we're making ourselves more strategically independent than we've, than we've been before. I say we, of course, Britain's no longer in the European Union. I am still psychologically in the European Union. Sure. Um, uh, but um, uh, I, I still don't believe myself that the European Union is going to be a, uh, is going to be a, a military power. Um, uh, it, it's not a, it's, I don't believe that there is going to be a European army. There will still be national armies, and I hope that they will work together. I hope that they will plan together. I hope that they will organize that they have what they ought to do, what they ought to have been done from years ago, um, is common procurement. Um, so that, um, uh, first of all, if you buy in large quantities, you get a better price. Secondly, if you've got, if you're all using the same helicopters, um, uh, it's much easier to interchange forces. Uh, you know how to get in and out of the helicopters quickly and so on. So there are many reasons why the first step ought to, be, ought, ought to have been long ago for Europe to do uh, common procurement for their armed services. It makes collaboration much better. Um, we get much better value for money. And it makes, um, uh, and then on the basis of that, you don't create a European army, but you create the possibility of bringing your military together um, uh, and working together. And it would be good for Europe, but the essential security framework in Europe is still NATO. Um, uh, uh, the US remains indispensable. In terms of military capability, um, uh, there's the gap between Europe and the USA is gigantic. Mm -hmm. um, and so what, why do you think, um, um, it, I mean, we've been talking about planning, co collective planning or aligned planning, coordinated planning among military forces in the EU, about joint proc procurement in the EU for a long time. Why, why is it so difficult to get there? Well, because um, uh, actually we, uh, we, we tried once or twice, and I remember talking to Javier about this um, and the normal um, reaction if you start talking about this to ministries of defense in Europe is um, they all get scared because they think that this will be used as an excuse by ministries of finance to reduce their defense budget. Mm. Um, uh, uh, and actually what you what you need to make what you we always needed to make it happen was for the heads of government to decide from above, right, we're going to do, we're not going to, defense budgets will remain as they are, or will grow, but uh, they will be spent in a collaborative way. Mm -hmm. We should have done this 20 years ago. Okay. And I understand in the Europe, in, in the EU, um, one of the institutions to do that in is the European Defense Agency. Yes. Yes. I mean, the European Defence Agency has existed in different forms for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. Um, but uh, it's now, I think, I hope, uh, taken on a much more serious uh, uh, role. And I hope that there is going to be more um, common, common equipment is, uh, well, as I was saying earlier, common equipment is cheaper. 
uh, and it's more useful because everybody can, can use it. Great. Um, you were also part of the team that, or probably the lead author, um, uh, invisible author of the European Security Strategy back in 2003, uh, which was the first uh, European Security Strategy or, or document of that type coming out from the newly um, created high representative um, position. Uh, if you were to uh, draft a similar strategy today, or a strategy on European security today, how would you go about it? Well, it would be different because, if I remember correctly, that document begins, uh, Europe has never been so um, uh, secure, so prosperous, uh, and so free. Um, uh, um, actually, if you look um, in a longer historical perspective, that's still true. Um, and we were writing at the time, at the moment, when um, uh, Poland, the Czech Republic, uh, the Baltic states had just uh, joined the European Union, uh, and that was really a uh, uh, that, that was really a moment of um, success. It was the it was the end of the Cold War. It was the return to uh, a kind of common European home, whatever you want to call it, of many countries which had previously been. Um, part of the Soviet Union, in the case of the Baltic states, or um, uh, under Soviet military threat in the case of the Central European countries. So um, uh, it's, it's still true. I think people now feel less secure. But, um, uh, but nevertheless, uh, this is a Europe which is still more free, more united, more prosperous. Uh, than anything that's existed in any previous century. Mm -hmm. um, we ought not to, to forget that. Now it's a moment of danger, um, but, um, uh, 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 well, these moments come and go, and with luck you learn something from them. Um, and I hope that one of the results of this will be that um, uh, the enlargement of the European Union continues, um, it's been a success so far. Uh, um, uh, it needs to be done carefully and properly, but um, uh, the transformation of countries like um, the Baltic states and Poland and so on uh, is stupendous. Um, uh, if you want to know one of the sort of deeper origins of the Ukraine crisis, um, it came about because um, at some stage, and I forget which year it was, um, the uh, UEFA organized, had the UEFA Cup, um, was organized jointly by Poland and Ukraine. Um, and one of the things that happened was that many Ukrainians went for the first time recently to Poland. Um, and this was Poland which had now joined the European Union. Um, and there was a boom in Poland. It was enormously successful economically. Uh, and um, um, it was at that point that uh, Ukrainians started saying, um, if this is what the European Union looks like, then we ought to be part of that too. Um, and that was, I think, a much stronger idea in Ukraine than um, 
than joining NATO. That idea came rather from George W. Bush. And uh, uh, now we have, now the EU has, uh, has promised that Ukraine will become a member. Um, I think that will be a great thing for Ukraine. Um, and my hope is that um, the effect that Poland joining the, U joining the EU had on Ukraine, um, uh, well, the same effect might happen if Ukraine joined the European Union, it might have the same effect on Russia. Because after all, these are, um, these are uh, not the same people, but they are relatives. Um, and um, uh, you may not be able to persuade Russians intellectually that democracy is a good thing, um, but if they see their near neighbor, a society with a history very similar and interwoven with theirs, if they see uh, that becoming democratic and successful and open, liberal country, um, uh, maybe this will have an influence on Russia's future too. And that's the influence that Europe itself has had within its own continent. That it's still, in spite of this, uh, this war comes from outside. In spite of this, um, uh, this is still a Europe which is better than any other Europe we've had in history. Um, and, uh, and at least half of the cause of that is, um, is the European Union. Uh, European Union is not going, I don't believe it's going to be a military power. Um, I hope it will be able to assist uh, others in exercising military force, but I don't think it's going to be, uh, it's not going to be a military alliance. Um, um, but it is a, um, it has been the, it's the European power is the power that belongs to, it's like constitutional power. It's the, it's the power that creates order. Um, uh, and the order that has been created in Europe by the European Union is a kind of political miracle. Uh, if you think of the history of Europe, the history of Europe is war. Um, uh, I can't remember how many wars have been between Britain and France, uh, France and Germany, Spain and France. Uh, everybody invaded Italy at one point. This was the national pastime in the, uh, in the Renaissance. Um, uh, uh, and um, uh, I mean countries like Sweden were uh, extremely warlike in their time. So the history of Europe is a history of war and that we today have a Europe um, in which we take peace for granted, um, uh, that's a real miracle. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and the European Union is at the center of that. Mm -hmm. And so um, perhaps on, to, to conclude, um, what do you think uh, might make, might threaten m that miracle the most? So what is it that we as Europeans and we as Europeans um, valuing what we have, sometimes undervaluing it, but yeah. hopefully valuing what we have should be most aware of? Well, I think the thing that we ought to be most worried about, and now I, I speak more as British than as European, is, is that we ought to be, um, we ought to be worried about uh, democracy. Um, 
I don't think that democracy is something which is kind of, it's, it's not the work of nature. Uh, it's the work of, of history and of men. Um, and I think there are reasons to fear for democracy in the USA at the moment. Um, actually, there are reasons why I fear for democracy in my country, in Britain. Um, uh, government at the moment has got legislation to require uh, everybody to produce a photographic ID when they go to vote. Um, uh, to the objective observer, this looks like a way of uh, strengthening the vote for the Conservative Party because they are more likely to hold passports than the people who vote for Labour. Um, uh, this is something which has gone on for years in the USA uh, to uh, prevent um, black people from voting. So I don't like that very much. Um, actually, I don't like the democratic system in Britain very much. Um, uh, I think the, uh, the electoral system is, uh, stinks. Um, uh, so, and I think that democracy is not something you should take for granted. It needs constantly to be thought, to be re-examined, to be improved. Uh, you need people to be aware of it. That, I think, is the, real, is the real risk. I mean, we've just seen the great stupidity of Brexit. Um, uh, they couldn't get this through the House of Commons, so they invented this referendum uh, and ran a campaign which was lies from start to finish. Uh, well, if that's democracy, then um, there's something wrong with it. Um, so, I mean, I'm talking particularly about Britain, sure. um, but um, uh, I think democracy is something which needs uh, conscious effort to be, to be retained. Um, it's, it's not natural. You need to have a politically conscious people who understand that democracy is not the only possible system and that everything else is worse. Mm -hmm. um, but we need much more political consciousness. Mm -hmm. So, and to end, one of the paradoxes, however, building on this, um, on this idea of the need to defend democracy and the need to be conscious about the work and the effort democracy requires, is also looking at some new, in new members or newer members in the EU right. who have been benefiting yeah. a lot from the EU, for example, Poland as a successful case in many senses, yeah. but on the other hand, are not, uh, those uh, successes are not accompanied by the sense yeah. of defending democracy. Yeah, no, I think that, I mean, um, uh, uh, Poland has, um, uh, uh, at least gives the impression that it may be fixing the judicial system. Um, and democracy requires not just uh, people voting, it also requires um, solid institutions for implementing legislation, solid courts, uh, objective courts. Um, uh, and there's a, the, there's, it's, it's clear in Poland that the courts have been politicized. Um, uh, the case of Hungary is even more disgraceful. Um, and that's, this is dangerous, not just for the it's dangerous for the EU, it's dangerous for the countries themselves, and it also endangers the um, prospect of enlargement because it makes people skeptical about uh, future countries. The more you bring in, the more risk you take 
um, because I think it's, a, it's an absolute democracy is a precondition for European cooperation. Um, so the EU itself needs to get tougher on this. Um, now, I don't know quite how you do this because for my part, I, I find some elements of democracy in Britain very unsatisfactory. Um, and uh, um, for example, um, I have never thought that my vote mattered um, because the system of the electoral system in Britain means that I've always lived in a safe uh, either Labour or Conservative constituency. Mm -hmm. So that's not satisfactory. Um, and I think there ought to be a little bit more discussion within the EU about um, the workings of democracy and the workings of the rule of law. Mm. Those are the two fundamentals. Um, we ought to, you know, they ought to be, you can't always see these things yourself. To belong, belong in the European Union, we ought to, dis we ought to debate these things. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the last comment, perhaps, yes. to finish off on a more positive note. Um, um, so before the, uh, this disastrous war uh, in Ukraine, um, the rhetoric about the decline of the West was getting louder and louder. And that was the decline not only of the West, but in particular of the democratic systems. Yes. Uh, the way today that might be uh, interpreted in, in a different light, given the incompetent war by the Russians, with the problems we're seeing right now, perhaps in the other major power, non-democratic yes. power, China. Yeah. What do you yeah. think about that? Yes, I, uh, well, um, uh, I don't think that, I don't think that, um, the problems of democracy are over. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the problems haven't gone away in the USA, uh, although Trump may himself go away, but the problems are not over. There's lots of electoral fraud still in the USA, for example. Um, uh, uh, and that we need to be more conscious of this. Uh, so, uh, you know, we need to have a little bit more of a political reawakening in Europe and examine our own institutions and our own democratic systems. We need to do this profoundly in Britain. Um, uh, the Labour Party is now um, proposing to um, reform the House of Lords. Um, the House of Lords is a charming um, relic of the medieval system um, in which the, uh, the Estates General, um, I don't know if you ever had this in, this was after all the governing body in France at one point, mm -hmm. and you had three chambers. You had the, um, uh, the aristocrats, uh, the church, uh, and the commons. Um, and that's what we have in Britain. The House of Lords is the Lords spiritual and temporal, um, uh, aristocrats and bishops sit in the House of Lords. Um, and also people who've made big donations to the Conservative Party. Um, so democratically, um, uh, this is rubbish. Um, uh, for my part, I would like to, um, but I'm the only person I think who thinks this, I would like to reorganize the House of Lords. Um, uh, according to the Greek version of democracy um, and choose the members uh, by lottery. Um, 
so that you get a cross section of the population um, and you would or you would have to organize the lottery in a way that ensured that um, regions uh, age brackets uh, ethnicities and so on were well represented in this and you then have to reorganize the way in which debates take place because you have to bring people in for evidence to give evidence and so on but you could have two houses one which is elected which we would call the house of the parties and one which is chosen by a lottery which you would call the house of the people two kinds of democracies roman democracy and greek democracy i think that would be a good way to uh, reform but we we need to have a debate on this we need to take democracy seriously Great. Fascinating. And we'll finish off with that. We need to take democracy seriously. Thank you very much, Mr. Cooper, for, for this time uh, you dedicate to talk to us. Mr. Cooper is visiting Esade today to teach in a few minutes a lecture with Javier Solana in our MBA program. Thank you very much, Mr. Cooper. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. If you still want to learn more, remember, you can register on our platform, dobetter.asade.edu. That was all for today. Until next time, thank you. <laughs>